Thanks, Tom. I appreciate you uh, sharing God's Word uh, uh, with the church family this morning. Uh, please join along with me in a word of prayer. Father, uh, you are always um, at our sides, and you speak and commune with our hearts. Uh, Lord, you give our uh, lives direction and purpose. Uh, even when we find that we're in the trenches or um, struggling with our own doubt or unresolved questions or situations in our lives, uh, we know, Lord, that life can be distracting, that it can move us away from your presence. And sometimes life can even harden us, and uh, at times we find that we are wayward or rebellious or we have turned our backs upon you. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for Easter in this season of reckoning, in this time of reflection, help us, Lord, to uh, mourn the loss of any breaking in our relationship with you, trusting that you will restore us with a right and true and good confession uh, that we miss you, that we need you, that we love you, and that we can't live this life, Lord, all by ourselves. So come, Lord, to our rescue today, we pray. Might we be inspired and encouraged and challenged through your word. Be with me also, Lord, uh, the preacher and pastor of these people that you have called and raised up Father, I ask that your Holy Spirit would do its work as you have promised to never allow it to return to you empty without accomplishing its divine and eternal purposes. I pray and ask these things now in your mighty name. Amen. Well, we are halfway through our sermon series on uh, unrepentant uh, rebellion. And I'd like to uh, begin this morning with a thesis that uh, may or may not shock you, depending. And the thesis is simply this, that 21st century Christianity is rather soft and mild. Now, although faith asks much of us, or at least it ought to, we resist anything that Jesus asks of us that tends to be demanding, or perhaps self-sacrificial, that can be a challenge. C.S. Lewis uh, writes in his book, Mere Christianity, which I would invite us all to, to read. He says, that is why he, Jesus, warns people to count the cost before becoming Christians. Make no mistake. He says, if you let me... I, Jesus, will make you perfect. The moment you put yourself in my hands, in Jesus' hands, that is what you are in for. Nothing less or other than that. You have free will. And if you choose, you can push me away. But if you do not push me away, understand that I am going to see the job of your perfection through to its end. So are we ready to let him see that job through within our lives? Now, some of us, honestly, we are ready for that, and others of us, not so much. I'm presently leading a, uh, a study uh, during our adult Christian education time entitled The Daniel Plan, uh, penned and authored by uh, Pastor Rick Warren of Saddleback Community Church out in Mission Viejo, California. And within the Daniel plan are five essential F's. There is faith, food, fitness, focus, 
and friends. We're looking at all of those topics about how it is that we can improve and make better our walk with the Lord and our own spirituality. And our relationship with food is one of those considerations. And of course, fitness and faith, they all go together in a lot of ways. And so I was rather shocked as I uh, looked into, well, how fit are we? And I came across some statistics of uh, two years ago, well, not quite two years ago, in 2016, that rated the number one state with the highest obesity levels, which was West Virginia, our neighbor next door, with 38% of the state population was uh, obese. Uh, Next was uh, to our south, state of Kentucky. Well, they were ranked seventh out of all 50 states, but they came in at 34% uh, obesity levels. And then in 10th place was uh, Indiana, also sharing our border, and Michigan, likewise. They were tied uh, in 10th place with 32.5% of their population came in as obese. And Ohio, if you're curious, came in out of all uh, 50 states as number 19 at 31.5% of our population was considered obese. Now, you might say, well, Pastor... um, Is that the the entire story? No, because children are also becoming more and more obese. We know this. Uh, The national average is 31%. So three out of 10 kids are now obese. The worst state with childhood obesity is Tennessee at 38%. And the best state to live, I guess, if you're a kid, maybe they're getting plenty of exercise, is the state of Utah. They only come in with 19%. Uh, rates of obesity. So clearly, my friends, we are soft around the edges, perhaps in more ways than one. We eat too much, we exercise too little, have shrinking friendship networks, and sorry, but your online networks don't count, and faith is now quite mild, perhaps akin more to a hobby, if you will. Um, Again, I call upon C.S. Lewis who says, we may be content to remain what we call ordinary people. You want to be an ordinary person? Our faith calls us to more. C.S. Lewis says, but he is determined, the he being God, to carry out quite a different plan in our lives other than just being ordinary. To shrink back from that plan is not humility, Lewis writes. It is laziness and cowardice. To submit to it is not conceit or megalomania. It is obedience to follow through on this plan that God desires for us in our lives. Now, as a consequence, one might say that the church is no longer vigorous, bold, and daring. I love that saying from the uh, founder of the Salvation Army, General Booth, who said, I like my religion like my tea. I like it hot. Do you like your faith? Do you like your religion hot, if you will? And so as we examine as we reflect upon uh, the, the, the life of the church and see perhaps it isn't as vigorous as it once or bold as it once was or daring as it once was. 
Is our softness and mildness holding us back from advancing together with God? Often faith in the church today wishes to be content, undisturbed, and above all, very pleasant. Yes. Can I get an amen to encourage the preacher this morning? Amen. Can I get a witness here this morning? Yes. I went out to lunch recently with a, a pastor, a friend of mine, uh, Dr. Mike Parker, and you know we were uh, talking together, and he said, "You know, Daniel," he said, "so much of our preaching, and 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 Pastor Parker and I, we we can comment on this because we're ministers." And he said to me, "So much of our preaching must have an entertainment value to it, or people just don't even bother to listen anymore." And that kind of uh, you know, that, that, that found some space in my life as, as he shared that because I think that's, that's so very true. And so the challenge uh, for preachers and pastors is not to shy away from those topics that may be strenuous uh, or cause us to grow in our uh, faith. And so is the church, my friends, even allowed to discuss sin in our politically correct culture? Are we allowed to do that, or is bad behavior in or outside of the church the new norm? You know what I mean? Far be it from the church to ask for or insist upon moral ethics, not draconian law. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about Judeo-Christian ethics. Are, is there a, a place that we're entitled to ask for or insist upon a baseline of Judeo-Christian ethics? I mean, think about it uh, for a moment. If you uh, go back in history to the 1700s, you all know that I'm a John Wesley fan who is the founder of Methodism. He addressed the topic of masturbation. Yeah? And he said it was not a, a good thing, but I would consider that 300 years ago to have probably been a very tough topic, but as the founder of Methodism, he addressed that topic that we now are perhaps a little more reluctant because it's not so correct to talk about such topics, at least within the church. Oh, sure, we can get our, our infill at other places in our culture, but in the church, maybe that creates an unpleasant feeling and we shouldn't talk about it. Well, in a very small church I once pastored in Great Britain, it was a village church in the village of Norton, that congregation was led by a layman by the name of Leonard Whitley. For 40, 40 years this man consistently led that village church. And so uh, as being pastor there, I went back through some of their church records and I discovered that there was a gentleman in the congregation that was drunk all the time. Showed up to worship, drunk and so on. And I continued to read on in the records where the spiritual leaders of that congregation had to discipline that individual for his frequent bouts of drunkenness. Where do we hear of these kinds of things anymore within the church? Sure, farm them out to a psychologist. Sure, farm them out to a self-help group. But this place where we know the living God, Christ Jesus, who is able to change and transform our lives completely from head to toe, perhaps we don't want to talk about these things. It's uncomfortable. Another example might be um, what I have 
uh, come to learn as the laughable book of discipline within the United Methodist Church, with all due respect for our United Methodist uh, brothers and sisters, and I've already shared with you that I'm a fan of uh, John Wesley, in their book of discipline, in the qualifications for ordination, here's what it says, and I'm reading from paragraph 304.3, qualifications for ordination. While persons set apart by the church for ordained ministry are subject to all the frailties of the human condition, yes, that's very true, and the pressures of society, yes, that's very true, they are required to maintain the highest standards of holy living in the world. The practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching. Therefore, the Book of Discipline says, self-avowed practicing homosexuals are not to be certified as candidates, ordained as ministers, or appointed to serve in the United Methodist Church. So there it is. It, it stands on their books, uh, paragraph 304.3. Well, some say that these kinds of moral questions should no longer matter. And the United Methodist Church is actually taking up this whole topic in uh, 2018. We shouldn't interfere. Because that mentality goes interfering. Well, we don't want to interfere because the church is meant to be a mild place. Ask Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. if the church was meant to be a mild place back in the 1960s, if you will. We shouldn't interfere, you know? But that is what the Holy Spirit does best with us. Thank God for that grand interrupter called the Holy Spirit that comes into our lives and changes things up in ways that perhaps we had never anticipated and brings us back to a moral, ethical basis within our lives based upon God's Word. So what does the Holy Spirit have to do with our sins, yes? Well, John tells us in John chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, Jesus is teaching about the Holy Spirit. When He comes, who comes? When the Holy Spirit comes, He'll expose the error of the godless world's view of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He'll show them that their refusal to believe in Me is their bait. How about that? That's the basic sin, a refusal to believe in God. That righteousness comes from above, where I am with the Father, out of their sight and control. That judgment takes place as the ruler of this godless world. Godless world is brought to trial and convicted. Now, whatever the United Methodist Church decides, whatever their decisions are, those decisions are going to affect people in congregations all over this country. It kind of reminds me of the German evangelical church back during World War II, what was called the Landeskirche. You see, the Nazis, they wanted a tame, mild church that accommodated to their cultural values of Nazism. And the German evangelical church said, okay, we'll go along with that. Some, however, in Germany, they resisted that and they raised up faithful believers who were anti-Nazi. They were called the Confessing Church Movement. Perhaps we need another Confessing Church Movement today in 2018. 
A movement of Christians who are unafraid to say, well, this is right, and this is wrong. Can we still say that today? Or is it all just a bunch of gray? But notice the movement in today's Scripture, what we do or don't do. As I said, that decision out of the United Methodist Church is going to affect a whole bunch of Methodists. But what we do or don't do also affects our relationship with God. Now, this is contrary to our postmodern deistic tendencies, which like to keep God at an arm's length. You know, that is, nothing much that we do really affects God, right? That's the standing presupposition within our culture. We 21st century folk all suffer from a little bit of soapy schizophrenia. On the one hand, we want to be desperately, desperately connected to each other. But on the other hand, we're not so bothered about being disconnected from God. It's a soapy schizophrenia. Again, we hear from C.S. Lewis in his book this time, Miracles. He says, men are reluctant to pass over the notion of an abstract and negative deity to the living God. Because we all hold those concepts of an abstract negative deity. And he goes on to write, I do not wonder. The pantheist God does nothing. Demands nothing. He is there, if you wish for him, like a book on a shelf. The pantheist God will not pursue you. But the God that we serve pursues us and goes after us. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, you see is a direct attack upon our ailing and infirm deistic tendencies. And if, if that's an unknown word to you, deistic just refers back to that uh, philosophy in the 1700s where people believed that God was always at a distance from them. But Ephesians chapter 4 attacks that philosophical notion where it says, don't grieve God. In other words, God can be affected by what we do, what we say, and who we are. Don't break His heart. His Holy Spirit moving and breathing in you is the most intimate part of your life, making you fit for Himself. Don't take such a gift for granted. That to me sounds like a God who is completely affected by what we think of Him. Now, if we are... Uh, open, if we open up that word grieve in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30, the word in the New Testament Greek is lupeo, and it means to experience deep emotional pain akin to that of having childbirth. That's the kind of pain that we can put God through. Now, I know the, 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 the pains that are associated with childbirth are oftentimes joyous, I don't know, I've never gone through those kinds of pains before in my life. Intense kind of pains, but that word lupeo wants to connect all the, the intensity of the suffering that goes along with that. That we have the, the capability of doing that to God in our relationship with Him. It's amazing, really, the power that we have, isn't it? We move from breaking God's heart to suppressing the Holy Spirit. That's what 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says. Don't suppress the Spirit. 
and don't stifle those who have a word from the master. On the other hand, don't be gullible. Check out everything and keep only what's good. Throw out anything tainted with evil. So what are other ways that we can render the word for suppress that is mentioned there in 1 Thessalonians? Quench might be another word, quench, but the, the, more, uh, the best definition uh, for quenching or suppressing is extinguish. Blow it out. Turn it off. Kind of reminds me of that children's hymn we all used to sing if we grew up in the church, right? Hide it under a bushel. No, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. Don't stifle, suppress, quench, blow out the Holy Spirit, says St. Paul. Don't regard it as counting for nothing or to regard it as something that is lacking or coming up. The work of the Holy Spirit in our life never lacks at all. But why would anyone want to suppress the Holy Spirit? You know. Tame the Spirit. Why would we want to make it mild or dumb it down as we like to say today? Well, the answers are are obvious. First of all, the Holy Spirit is our teacher. John chapter 14, the primary role of the Holy Spirit is our teacher. That is, we've all got lessons to learn from the Holy Spirit. Can I get an amen? Amen, we do. He has things to teach us. You, me, all of us, collectively together. That's the Spirit's work. Now, there are lots of reasons, my friends, that you know that children don't perform well academically in school. There be lots of reasons. Could be disruption in the home. Uh, could be uh, uh, influences with, within the, the neighborhood, the, the culture. We don't know. But, but also, one of the reasons that children don't perform well academically is that sometimes they just don't care. Sometimes they're just plain old lazy, Right? Those can be reasons too. Some people just don't want to learn. You know children that are eager to learn. They're hungry. The world's a big, bright, wonderful, open place. And tell me more, Mom and Dad. Tell me more, Grandma and Grandma. And there are some kids that just kind of, you know? You know that. Learn what from the Holy Spirit? Learn all the things that are true. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is our comforter or our helper. The Greek word there is parakletos, and the word can also mean holder, someone who holds you, someone who is paying close attention to your situation. Far be it from the deists to believe in that, God is holding us, paying intimate attention to who you are, what you're thinking, what you're going through, yes? And so the deists... They like to believe that God is on a long jog somewhere. We don't quite know exactly where, but he's, he's out there. And maybe one day, if we're all so fortunate or blessed, maybe God will take a lap by planet Earth one day and we'll all be the better for it, yeah? There was a um, cute commercial that was running during uh, the Olympics. Um, Janet and I love uh, watching the the Olympics, it's uh, one of the few things that we do look forward to on television. Uh, uh, I, I particularly, with a, with a Swiss mother that grew up kind of uh, with lots of snow, we particularly enjoy the uh, Winter Olympics. And uh, it's a cute commercial came on TV from St. Elizabeth Hospital. Perhaps some of you saw it. And, and the saying or the catchphrase within that commercial was, I'm right here. 
right? I'm right here. I'm right here. The parakletos in a legal sense, because the word has overtones of, of a legal definition, is of somebody who goes to court for you, stands up for you, and is your defense. Standing close with you. Yes? Now, while some reject God's comfort and His holding, I don't know how many of us want to reject God's holding because God wants to hold us, you know? And some people experience God's holding only after kicking and screaming against it because to be held is to admit that you're weak. That you're inadequate. That you actually need something from somebody else that you can't give to yourself. That somebody wants to give you because they love you and they're going to hold you. Yeah? And some people, well, far be, far be that from me. Me? Needy? Never. Please don't say that about me. Some reject the Spirit's advocacy and choose to go through life all by their lonesome saying no to God at every turn that He wants to hold us. No, 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 no. I can do it, God. And lastly, and I like this one, the Spirit drives us into places that we would rather not go. Yes, as we prepare our hearts for Easter, we know that Jesus was led, driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. The New Testament Greek language says Jesus was led. Anago is the word there. And this word anago means put out to sea. Jesus was put out to sea. He, it means to set sail. The word anago means to launch out there. Yes, Jesus was launched by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness. Now, some within the church, my friends, they just want to hug the shoreline. How about an amen? Yeah, amen. Some just want to hug the shoreline. Why? Because the shoreline is the safe place. Yeah? The sea, oh, the sea, the sea is where all the dangers are. But the sea is also where the adventure is. Yeah? Janet and I, uh, we're almost done with it, but we're watching this documentary um, about New York City. Perhaps some of you have seen it. It's a long documentary. I don't know. I've been watching this thing. You know, each, each uh, episode is like two or three hours long. You've got to break it up, you know, into parts. It's just so long. But it's very, very good. It chronicles the history of New York City all the way from the Dutch-English settlers to the falling of the Twin Trade Towers on 9-11. And part of the history of the Twin Trade Towers, for those of you that are old enough to remember, if you go back to 1974, how many of you remember the name of Philippe Petit? Crickets. I see no one. Yes? If I say um, tightrope walker, Anyone? Yes, Philippe Petit. Yes, he got it in his mind that he was going to string a cable between the World Trade Towers and that he was going to go across tightrope fashion walking across the Twin Trade Towers. How did he get that dream? He was sitting in a doctor's office ten years even before the Twin Trade Towers were built. There was a picture of the proposed plan for the Twin Trade Towers in a magazine that he was reading in his doctor's office. And as soon as he saw those towers, he knew in his heart that he was going to have to cross them. And it took him ten years of planning to get there to actually do this. 
Now the amazing thing is, is that Philippe Petit, when he was out there on the tightrope, he walked between those two buildings for 43 minutes, making eight passes back and forth along that tightrope. He was even lying down on the tightrope. He had a 50-pound bar to balance himself as he walked back and forth. And of course, the cops were called and they responded and they're standing on one edge of the building. And the police officers report that as he was out there, you know the height of the Twin Trade Towers, he was laughing and smiling and enjoying himself. And he writes in his memoirs, he says, I knew that unless I walked between those two buildings, I would just die inside. And I had to figure out a way to do it. Why? Because he was a Nago. He was led to do it. Because that's where the adventure was and is the wonder of life to be found. Now, I, I wonder what it would be like if Christians had the faith of Philippe Petit. Yeah? You know, the kind of faith that quits continually hugging the shoreline all the time. Can I get an amen? Yeah? To practice a faith that inside we'll know that unless we practice our faith in an adventuresome kind of way, we're just going to shrivel up on the inside and die unless we can live with reckless abandon for Him. Now here's where I'll end. I'll end with Hebrews chapter 10 and verses 29 to 31 because it paints a picture. I've shared with you that the Holy Spirit is our teacher, right? It paints a picture of when the teacher is not happy. It says this, if we give up and turn our backs on all we've learned, you've learned things from the Holy Spirit. I've learned things from the Holy Spirit. If we give up on all of those things, all the truth we know, we repudiate Christ's sacrifice and are left to face our own judgment. And a mighty fierce judgment it will be. If the penalty for breaking the law of Moses is physical death, what do you think will happen if we turn our back on God's Son? spit on the sacrifice that made you whole and insult the most precious spirit. This is not a light matter. God has warned us that he'll hold us to account and make us pay. He was quite explicit. Vengeance is mine, and I won't overlook a thing, and God will judge his people. No one's getting away with anything. Believe me, the writer to the book of Hebrews says. Well, I was in a uh, classroom not too long ago where when I arrived, the teacher explained to me the rules of her classroom. And they were simple. There was four rules. She was a lovely teacher. She was absolutely pleasant, but she had rules, you know? And the first was, rule number one, keep your hands to yourself. That's a, these were elementary school kids, okay? So it worked, right? Um, keep your hands to yourself. Number two, raise your hand if you have a question. Number three, no talking in the hallways. That's always a, a good thing. And number four was, keep the teacher happy. <laughs> yeah? So if the Holy Spirit is our teacher, how do we keep the Spirit happy? 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 says, check out everything and keep only what is good. Throw out anything that is tainted with evil. Now, this is what I would call the sniff the milk jug test, yeah? Do you all know what the sniff the milk jug test is, if I were to say that to you? 
tainted food in the fridge, what do we do with it? What do you do with your tainted food? Throw it out. It's past its sell-by date. You open up that jug of milk and you go, if you pass that under your nose and you feel it viscerally in your stomach, you know it's tainted and i got to get rid of this, right? That's how we teach. We keep our teacher, the Holy Spirit, happy and our faith on fire. Yes, we throw it out. We discard the tainted things within our life. There is a reason that fire in Acts chapter 2 and 1 Kings chapter 18 is how the Holy Spirit manifests Himself. The Spirit burns up everything that's tainted. Elijah, 1 Kings chapter 18, challenged the people. Elijah, Elijah the prophet says this, How long, he says this to the people, how long are you going to sit on the fence? Wow. How about that for preaching? Yeah? If God is the real God, follow Him. If it's Baal, godless Baal, follow Him. Make up your minds. That's what Elijah says. Make up your minds. Who are you going to follow? We learn again, and I'll close with C.S. Lewis. He writes, It is a matter of common experience that when one person has gotten himself into a hole, no, he's writing for me there, the trouble of getting him out usually falls on a kind friend. How many of us have been pulled out of the hole by a friend? Yeah? Now what was the sort of hole that man had gotten himself into? He had tried to set up on his own to behave as if he belonged to himself. In other words, fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs some improvement. I just need a little improvement. That's all. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Mm. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying that you're sorry. Realizing that you've gotten on the wrong track. That's the only way out of the hole. This process of surrender. This movement of full speed astern. Is what Christians call repentance. And so it is. That we repent. In preparation of receiving. And applying his shed blood upon the cross. For us in our lives, we repent and we are changed. Amen.